Podcast got Matt Norlander here with me, and this is the second of three podcasts this week. And you can consider this my friendly reminder that you should go ahead and subscribe via iTunes. Rate the podcast favorably. Write nice comments about me if you want to add something complimentary about Norlander. That's fine, but unnecessary. We're mostly focused on me, and if you do that, then you and I we will be cool as school. So, Champions Classic is now in the book. I was at the United Center. Uh, in Chicago, number one, Duke beat number two, Michigan State, 88-81. Then number four, Kansas beat number seven, Kentucky, 65-61. Let's take these games one by one because it was a fun night uh, for college basketball. We got a historic night, career night from Grayson Allen. Norlander, um, I will now accept your thoughts on Duke-Michigan State. I may submit my thoughts on Duke-Michigan State, and therefore you will accept them. This is your time to submit your thoughts on Duke-Michigan State, and I will accept them. Here comes my submission. Uh, was a different game than I expected, not just because of Bagley going out with the eye injury, which, you know what, let's just focus on this for a second. Um, you know, friendly fire, gruesome. You know, who was the, uh, was it Alan Ray at Nova like 10 years ago who had yeah. like the really freaky dangerous one that was like gruesome? Do you remember that? His eyeball was hanging out. Insanely scary. Um, so fortunately for Bagley, he avoided that. But what's with, like, what's with the Duke managers and the towels? Thank you, God. I, like, I want to punch both of those guys in their throats. <laughs> but what you could not see, or maybe you could if you had a monitor next to your GP as they do this, and then ESPN just goes sky kind <laughs> so you got you got these managers that are blocking off Bagley as if it's like some sort of ersatz medical tent, and the camera <laughs> coming like, in from the top, going right over the top on Duke's uh, like, 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 right like, field. Like Bagley just like stepped into a roadside bomb, and now they're protecting his severed leg from from the cameras. Like, come on, man. Like, listen, I, I know that they're doing what they're told to do or what they think they ought to do, but you are taking yourself way too seriously if your goal is to hold Gatorade towels in front of ESPN cameras so they can't get a glimpse of Marvin Bagley. It was it was ridiculous. Um, the Bagley, listen, Bagley versus Jaron Jackson was a lot of fun for as little as it lasted. Jaron Jackson uh, certainly helped himself out in the eyes of scouts and showed us he's got a little bit of an ugly release on that three-point shot, but a few of them went in regardless. And uh, listen, if he's going to be, I'm telling you, if he's going to be that good in Michigan State, maintains its status, you know, top five type team, he could be good enough where he might take away votes from Bridges just because other players might be doing more with less, whereas Bridges obviously has a lot of talent around him. That was my expectation heading into this season. Michigan State being that bad on the boards was a little bizarre to see. Uh, now, Duke's got the size and the length, don't get me wrong, but I didn't think they'd get beat that bad. I thought Bridges was okay in spots, hit a few nice shots. Um, I wouldn't say he was passive whatsoever, uh, but he certainly did not rise to the level of the moment the way that uh, Grayson did. And listen, Grayson had some tremendously difficult and impressive uh, three-pointers that he hit and it picked a great time to have his best game yet in a Duke uniform. Uh, I'll, I'll leave most of the Grayson commentary to you because I know a lot of people listening all figure that we're going to hit on that part of it anyway. Um, for Duke to get what it got from some other spot players, I think was was pretty big. Uh, I'm not too concerned with Michigan State. I do think that the team will grow into a legitimately number one seed caliber kind of club uh, down the road. Bizarrely, I I think this has been kind of tossed around a little bit um, 
in the in, in the build up to the game. But then once like the game happened and, the, and then afterward, uh, it really became the stat of the night. And that was just that Izzo amazingly is is one in 11 all time versus Shashevsky. The one win came in 2005 in the Sweet 16. But otherwise, they're all losses. And he's only had one game at home versus Duke in that time. And actually, Michigan State was the it was that, that one game that Michigan State had at home, GP, was the only time it was in 03 uh, that Michigan State's ever been ranked higher than Duke in the polls. And they ended up losing by more than 20 points. But otherwise, the ACC Big Ten Challenge always sends Sparty to Cameron Indoor. Or they've had NCAA tournament meetups. Or obviously, now every three years, they meet in the Champions Classic. With Duke, non-Grayson Allen division, um, they obviously put on an array that firmed up their number one ranking. There's no getting around it. Uh, even after Bagley left the game, they looked plenty good, plenty capable. Um, I was I was particularly impressed. Trayvon Duvall, a player that we had ranked in our top 20 uh, list of players for top 101 in the preseason, definitely looked the part overall. So it was uh, an affirming night for Duke. Michigan State fans could be a little frustrated, but I have a, a pretty strong conviction that that team will be, look a lot better, even as recently or as soon as a month from now, uh, as opposed to having to wait until we get to the tournament. A couple things. Um, with Izzo being now 1-11 against K, like that's a big number. Like It like, jumps off the page, and it's one of those, I think you termed it on Twitter, a gorilla stat. Like, I, I, do you like, because yeah, because basically, I'll let you go here, but I, I was writing this thing. I was like, you know what? I've never heard of anyone kind of naming this kind of thing where, like, Bill Self never got to the Final Four until he finally did. Steve Young never won a Super Bowl until he finally did. Sean Miller's never gotten to a Final Four and all this stuff, right? So it's almost like this gorilla on the back of these people. So, yeah, this is now going to be a thing where it's, it's happened so much and they're so high profile that, yeah, until Tom Izzo can get a win or two, this is going to be his gorilla stat, the same way that the Bills have never made the playoffs in the 21st century. There are just... There are certain statistics that attach themselves to the narrative of a team or a coach or a player. And now for Izzo, I think this is this has become officially his guerrilla stat. I, I've, I've often referred to similar things as your bullet points. Like, your, yep. your, you know, when your fans or just fans in general have bullet points about you, they can either be positive or they can either be negative. And often they are negative, and this is obviously Izzo's negative. Um, I, I, because of where I live, we had to talk about it a lot because I don't know if you remember, but – Memphis, right? Well, when Josh Pastor was the Memphis coach, could, yes. exactly right. That was his bullet point. Had had zero. He was like zero and eleven against the top twenty-five. Zero and thirteen against the top twenty-five. Finally, he ended up beating a top twenty-five team. But like for a while, that was his bullet point. It became a big, big burden. It was the graphic that you threw on TV every time he lost to another top twenty-five team. And so now with Tubby Smith, it's, his bullet point is zero top one fifty recruits. Like hadn't had any. Mm-hmm. Class of 2016, class of 2017, class of 2018, zero. That's his bullet point now. And Izzo's bullet point is obviously 1-11 record against K. Uh, people make a lot about that. I guess I would simplify it to this. Though Tom Izzo is a Hall of Famer and one of the all-time greats, he's never been able to match rosters with Mike Krzyzewski. I mean, is that is that really what this boils down to? I, I think that's fairly fair. Now, there have been certain years where I think Michigan State's had more talent or a better roster, but those years might have been years that they didn't play Duke. So it also right. it's, it's a little bit unlucky. I, I bet you if you went back to every single game, it, it, often the, the, um, the substance is in the specifics. I bet if you go back and look at all 12 of those games, what you'll find out is, you know what? K had the better team every time. <laughs> so, so like K1, 
almost every time. Like I, you know, it's uh, where where coaching greatness comes into play is when you have maybe a comparable roster or an inferior roster, but you can get more out of it than that other guy because you're Tom Izzo and he's not. But that doesn't really work when you're Tom Izzo and he's Mike Krzyzewski. Like he's the he's the goat, you know. Like so, you're not gonna um, out coach him. And I, I'm not saying Tom's inferior to Mike. I think they're both all time greats. I'm just saying like. Mike ain't really the guy you're going to exploit and make up for a talent deficit. Like, you know, that, that ain't him. There are some other guys that have been in the ACC or basically every league in America that you can, all right, I'll get this guy. He might have better players than me, but I'll get him. But, but Mike's not that guy. And so I really don't make much of it other than, you know, most people have a terrible record against Duke. And, and like Mike was funny in the postgame last night because somebody brought it up to him and he – he, he was very dismissive of it, like, you know, like quickly tried to shoo it away. Like, that doesn't mean anything. First off, we don't hang banners because of my record against another coach or our record against another team. But also, like, here's the truth. And, like, I, I liked him saying this because it is the truth. He said, you know what? Most people don't beat me. <laughs> like, he said, and most people don't beat him. You know, so, like, like, he basically said, we're two of the best, and I might be the best. So if your question is why is Tom Izzo lose to me all the time, it's because everybody loses to me all the time. I'm Coach K, damn it. Like, he didn't say that, but that's essentially, <laughs> that's essentially what he could have uh, said. Coach K, damn it. Yeah, no, I can say <laughs> um, As for Michigan State, like, I got no worries about them at all. Like, I, Tom was funny because I bumped into him in the hall afterward. And you know, Tom, you've been around him. Like, he's the guy that you ask a question, and he tells you exactly what he's thinking at that moment. Like, he ne- you never feel like he's BSing you. Like, whether you're on the record, off the record, like, he's going to shoot you straight. Now, he'll shoot you more straight off the record than on the record, but he'll shoot you straight anyway. So I see him in the hallway, I think, like, right before he's doing his post-game uh, you know, media responsibilities. And I wasn't, like, I didn't seek him out as much as I was leaving the Duke locker room and I bumped into him. And uh, he sort of tapped me on the arm or whatever, and I said, I said, how you doing? And he said, I'm effing pissed. <laughs> like that was it. That was his answer. Like he was so mad. And what he was mad about is he had just come to realize the the, the rebounding numbers. And he was more focusing on just the the just the pure rebounding numbers. Like they grabbed this many and we grabbed this many. But the killer was that Duke grabbed twenty five offensive rebounds, and Michigan State grabbed twenty three defensive rebounds. So there were forty eight Duke misses, and Michigan State only grabbed less than half of them. Like, Duke's offensive rebounding percentage last night was above 50%. Like, that's unacceptable, particularly against a team like Tom, like a Tom Izzo team. And so... By the way, has size and isn't like it was last year right. when it was more acceptable. This is a different group. They got they got dudes that, that can bang down low. They got dudes. And Bagley comes out 10 minutes into it, right? So, like, that's probably Duke's best rebounder. Certainly best offensive rebounder because he's just bouncing. He's got a great second jump and all that stuff. So, the your opponent loses Marvin Bagley and they still get an offensive rebounding rate above 50% on you like no way so Tom was furious about that Uh, but like when you take everything into consideration you get killed on the defensive glass from your perspective give up way too many offensive rebounds literally more offensive rebounds you give up than than defensive rebounds you grab Uh, Grayson Allen goes bananas career high 37 and Michigan State was still winning with four minutes to go. Like, it was 75-73 with four zero zero on the clock. And so if I'm Tom Izzo, yeah, I'm frustrated by how it happened. But, like, we just played the number one team in the country. We were tied with four minutes to go. They got a career performance from a senior guard. 
They killed us on the glass. Like, we're okay. Sort of the point I made in the column was um, I don't think anything differently about Michigan State than I thought, you know, uh, Tuesday afternoon. I still think they're the favorite in the Big Ten. I still think they're a Final Four contender. I still think they're a national championship contender. And if you played that same game a week from tomorrow, um, it might be tied in the final four minutes again, just like it was in the final four minutes here. I, I didn't think Michigan State got exposed as much as, you know, we don't have ties in basketball. Everybody's got to win um, or lose. And it was a tie game with four minutes to go. Like 359, I think, was when Duke actually tied it at 75. So it's a tie game, and then what? Grayson Allen hits a couple threes. The other team doesn't hit a couple threes, and that's how one team ends up winning by seven and the other team ends up losing by seven. But I'm not concerned about Michigan State. And I thought it was especially impressive from Duke because I don't know that they played all that well. They did lose Marvin Bagley. They got an awesome performance from Grayson, obviously. But um, they beat the number two team in the country. Like when they lost their most talented player 10 minutes into the game. That's pretty good. I'd love to see these two teams face each other again in March, uh, partly because we lost Bagley. And I'd love to see him and Jackson go for round two for a full 40 minutes at least there. I think it's big time for Grayson to play the way that he did because, listen, you're going against an elite opponent, neutral floor. They needed him to step up big. He did. He, listen, he's already been an All-American. Last season he had the debacles and he had the injuries. I get all that. But now that to have a game like this I think is big for, the, for him, for the team. We are way early, so I'm not even going to say that he's like the player of the year front runner. Let's at, least, let's at least everyone play like five games before we even start having those kind of conversations. But I will note uh, – that Frank Mason hit a uh, last-second shot to beat Duke in last year's Champions Classic. It was a big-time win for, for Kansas team. Mason goes on to win player of the year. Perhaps we'll have a little bit of a repeat thing here. If, if Duke ends up being a one seed and, and Grayson is in the range of averaging between 23 and 26 a game, then, yeah, he's going to have a great shot at, at being the player of the year. And d- this does not, you know, it, it's great to see Grayson playing this way. I'll be perfectly honest here one because it's just good to see him play this way but but also it will it will plenty much it will plenty fuel the fire for people that are going to hate Grayson no matter what and going to hate Duke no matter what and it will bother the hell out of them that Duke is going to be this good after being ranked first in the preseason now Grayson's able to come out and drop six or seven threes in a game I think that kind of interest and that kind of hatred toward that program just is good for college basketball just because it stirs the pot a little bit more but I but I do think that if he can continue to be this good on the floor it will be intriguing come december and january once we get the league play um if he can dodge any other nonsense uh how he's able to handle being uh hated not just for what he's done in the past but maybe being just hated for being jj reddick ish in that he's a player of the year candidate a white guy at duke who's a really good scorer and now how are you going to take on having this different kind of uh, of loathing being tossed your way, um, I think that could be pretty uh, pretty compelling. But we got to get to that point. We'll still see if if he truly is going to be the guy that's going to be the, the senior that's averaging uh, far more than anyone on the team. Bagley, remember, he had a 25 point game and a 24 point game before he got injured, so that's still to be determined there. But obviously, big gains for him. Uh, to your point about the nonsense, I'll just use your word. The nonsense last year, like completely, like overshadowed, if not buried, the fact that. Grayson Allen is an awesome college basketball player. You know, heading into last season, he was the favorite for National Player of the Year based on what he did as a sophomore at Duke when he was teammates with Brandon Egram. I mean, like, he put up monster numbers. And the season just didn't go well. I mean, it got off to an awful start. Harry Giles hurt. Jason Tatum hurt. Marquise Bolden hurt. 
um, that Grayson has the tripping incidents. Let's not shy away from it. Like those things happened. You know, he deserved uh, probably not all of the criticism that he got, but but some of the it was self inflicted. Um, and then he was hurt. You mentioned it earlier. Like he was legitimately hurt. It's hard for I think the casual basketball fan to understand that somebody's hurt when you look up and you go, well, they played every game. How hurt are they? Well, like he's hurt. He should like he was never one hundred percent last year, not once. And then something we talked about in the offseason, uh, more specifically, when Trayvon Duvall committed to Duke, like getting a natural point guard, a real primary ball handler onto that roster for the first time really since Tyus Jones left was going to be huge for Grayson Allen because it takes the ball out of his hands. He doesn't have to be a primary ball handler anymore. He can just be a scorer. And Kay went out of his way last night. I thought this was interesting. He said, everybody describes Grayson as a scorer because he is a great scorer. But one of the things I've talked to him about over and over again this offseason is that you're a great shooter. You're a good scorer. You're a great shooter. Be a great shooter first. Let's work from the three-point line in. And he said, in, in, recent, like in the past couple of years, especially last year, Grayson's motivation was always to get to the rim. And he would get to the rim by any means necessary and practice and in games. And that's how he often like ended up banged up. You know, he'd take hits all the time. He'd hit the court way too many times in practice and in games. So he never felt good because he was constantly getting hit because he was constantly trying to get to the rim. Like there's a benefit to, Hey, take two dribbles and pull up. You don't have to get to the rim every time. You don't have to take contact every time. You don't have to fall down every time you got nothing to prove. And so one of the things they said was that this entire offseason and preseason, like Grayson doesn't get hit anymore in practice. He doesn't, tr- he doesn't put himself in situations, I think the phrase Kay used was, in harm's way. So he feels better. He's healthier. You know, Duke opened the season with a Friday game and a Saturday game. And one of the points Grayson made was he said, you know, we did a back-to-back to start the season, and I felt great on Saturday. Like, I felt just as good on Saturday as I felt on Friday. And the reason is because he's not taking that punishment anymore. And so I don't think what you saw Tuesday night where he was, you know, I think he, he was 7 of whatever, 7 of 11 maybe from three-point range. Like, he's going to shoot three-pointers like that. Like, that's the, that is Coach K's instruction. Be a shooter, not a dunker. You're a great shooter. That's your skill. Be great from the perimeter. And then, like, when lanes open up for you, go. But just having – just trying to get past people – and, and draw contact from big men every other possession, that's not good for you. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, you might get to the free throw line, but you're taking a beating and it shows up in other parts of your game. And so not only did Grayson have a great game on Tuesday night, he had a game that by design is much different than anything he tried to do last year. And I don't think I'd ever heard um, Kay talk about it that extensively. I found it interesting. It is, and, uh, and plenty of Duke teams over the over the years that have been title-winning good, just, you know, top five for most of the season, even if they didn't make a, win a national title. They've always had at least one guy that will just kill you in those final five minutes. You just know it. You've, fans listening to this podcast that have watched Duke for years and perhaps rooted against Duke and just know that there's like one or two moments so often in Duke games in those final five minutes where maybe an opponent's just clinging on and this dude comes off a curl, hits a three, turns a four-point game into a seven-point game, and it's done. Uh, that could very well be Allen. 
you know, Duke is freshman laden and you got Shashevsky giving that order to Grayson. The other freshman laden team is Kentucky. Calipari will not be giving that order to anyone on this team right now because Kentucky cannot shoot the deep ball all that well. You wrote a column about their point guard issues. I'll let you handle the bulk of that as we talk about Kansas and, and, and KU here. Um, I was surprised by how put together Kentucky was, I guess, overall. Like, I don't think they played a bad game. They didn't play a great game. The bigs were bizarrely ineffective. Sasha Kalea Jones probably had the best game of his college career, and it was necessary to even keep him in the game because, and I did expect this. I mean, Nick Richards looked lost at times. Wenyan Gabriel should develop into a much better player, and I hope soon, but he's not shown himself to be quite as good as I thought maybe he would be at this stage. And then, you know, Hamadou Diallo definitely likes to shoot. There's no doubt about it, but he is not, he is by no means does he have a green light the way that Grayson does. Kansas gets a win. Uh, they shot terribly and still get the win. So almost similar to how Michigan State, they lose the game, but you looked at a lot of things that happened. You looked at the statistics and you're like, okay, well, all this went wrong and yet they were still relatively close. Kansas played terrible. Devontae Graham said on television afterward, we, we played like crap. I shot like crap. They still get a close win. Thoughts on, I guess, Kentucky's point guard situation, but also what we saw from Kansas on a night where it was a little weird. I guess maybe we can tag this after we talk about the actual play on the court. But they didn't have Preston. Like, they were expecting to get Billy Preston on the floor. He would have probably made a big impact. Instead, he gets held out because they're looking into the financial particulars of a car that he was driving and got into a, a minor single-car accident over the weekend. Yeah, if you're going to wreck a car, make sure it's yours. Uh, or, or at least one you can reasonably afford, I, I guess, is probably the lesson there. We'll get into that in just a second. But um, it was an interesting game in the sense that afterward, if you just went to the postgame press conferences and the locker rooms, meaning you talked to John Calipari and Kentucky players, you talked to Bill Self and Kansas players, and you deleted every reference they made to who won or lost the game, you wouldn't have known who won or lost the game. Like, Kentucky was kind of upbeat. They were kind of, like, encouraged by what they did because you and I both talked about this on, I guess it was Sunday, whenever it was we recorded the podcast. Um, we did not think Kentucky was ready to play with Kansas. We both think Kentucky is immensely talented because Kentucky is immensely talented. But trying to run that roster out there on, the you know, November 14th against a Kansas team that, you know, has a couple of seniors in its starting lineup. Uh, you know, Devontae Graham and Steve Mackay Luke. LeGerald Vicks, a junior. Malik Newman's a redshirt sophomore. I mean, I mean that's uh, Kansas is also super talented, but experienced, older. And I thought that would be the difference. I honestly thought Kansas would win by double digits. In fact, the way it went down, you know, it obviously was only 65-61 final score, so four-point game, but... You know, Kentucky was in it until the final minute. I mean, Kentucky was up in the final minutes. And so when you talked to, and I thought Kevin Knox was especially good on this, he said, listen, nobody was giving us a chance. Now, they, they, they played it a little bit like, you know, they were some low major team against Kansas. Yeah, like, like hey, like, yo, yo you're, you're, you're Kentucky, all right? Like, you don't get to play yeah, that. You can never play that card if you're wearing that uniform. But he was like, I think, like he wasn't exactly right because his quote was people thought we were going to lose by 20 or 30. No, nobody thought you were going to lose by 20 or 30, but maybe 10. I thought you might lose by 10. Um, but his, 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 his central point that 
after people watched us for two games, they didn't think we were ready for this. I agree with that. I mean, his central point was correct. I didn't think. I don't think most people thought they were ready for that, and yet they had a chance to win. And so they were a little bit encouraged. And I think Kansas was like, kind of like not discouraged, but I mean, because they're happy with the win. It's a win over Kentucky. You'll take it. But Kansas knew it did not play well, and I think Kentucky probably played a little better, or at least held it together a little better uh, than in, in anticipated. And, and one of the things it did show is that they're just so talented at most positions that even though they're inexperienced and not perfect, uh, they, you know, you're not just going to run them off the court. I mean, they still got pros all over the court. So um, what I thought was interesting is that, and I'll give credit where credit is due, Jason McIntyre from the big league and FS1 you know, brought this up on, on Twitter. He was like, did Kentucky just miss on all of its point guard targets and then have to settle for, for the guys they're running out there right now? And it was that idea that made me, go look up okay how do these guys compare to the other john calipari point guards because nobody um, in the country over the past decade has coached more high level point guards than than john calipari and so i went out there and and i started looking up a relative to the 247 sports um composite rankings and what i found was was interesting now uh if you take the past 11 seasons that John Calipari has has been a coach, that takes you back to 2007, 2008, uh, his second to last year at Memphis when they played for the national championship game, hashtag Chalmers for the tie, hashtag Dozier for the championship. Of course. I love Dozier for the championship. Uh, he has had a top three freshman point guard on his roster Nine of the past 11 seasons. That's, again, according to the 24-7 Sports Composite Rankings. The only two seasons where he didn't have one is the 2012-2013 season. You might remember it as the season they went to the NIT and lost to Robert Morris. And this season, the one that they're playing in right now. Because in 2007-2008, they had Derrick Rose. He was, according to 24-7 Sports, the number two point guard in the country uh, in his high school class. After that, he had Tyreek Evans. That was his final year at Memphis. Number three point guard in his high school class. After that, first year at Kentucky, uh, John Wall, number one point guard in his high school class. After that, Brandon Knight, number three point guard in his high school class. After that, Marquise Teague, uh, number two uh, point guard in his high school class. After that was the year they missed. I believe Ryan Harrow ended up playing point guard a lot that season. Transfer from? NC State. Finished his career at. Oh, man, that's you twisted it on me. Uh, you know it off the top of your head. Yes. Ryan Harrow. Yo, did he go to South Carolina? Georgia State. Oh, man, that's right. You're right. You're right. Because he was on that team that was. Well, yo, he was he on the team that that beat Baylor. I he might have been. I think he might have been on that team. Might have. But I have a weird memory. Like maybe he didn't play. Yeah, yeah. In that game. I don't know if that's true, though. It's possible I'm making all of this up. But no, it, yeah, uh, you might be, yeah. I, we're, we're, it's, we're touching on something that, it was something like that, because they also had, um, it wasn't that year, but they had uh, Kevin Ware afterward, I believe. That's true. But anyway. Yeah, so, okay, so then 2013-14, Andrew Harrison, number one point guard in his class. 
2014-15, Tyler Eulis, number three point guard in his class. 2015-2016, Isaiah Briscoe, number two point guard in his class. Last year, De'Aaron Fox, number two point guard in his class. And this year, they enrolled Quade Green, who was the number five point guard in his class. And uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who is technically listed as a combo guard and looks more like a combo guard than a point guard because he had six turnovers <laughs> against Kansas. Interesting so, player, but yeah. Yeah, so um, listen, uh, we're splitting hairs a little bit here. We're talking about uh, a, a, the difference between being a top three-point guard as opposed to uh, a, a, you know, a guy ranked fifth at your position. But I, what I do think is important to recognize is that this point guard class, and you please correct me if I'm wrong, this point guard class that's freshman, they're like it's not a, it's not considered a great point guard class. It's a good. Not, last year was an all timer. Last year was an all timer. Stark. Yeah. It's a stark drop off. I still think there are a good one like Jalen Hands at UCLA. I think is freaking terrific, and they've got we've got other ones that are good. But yeah, I mean, Quade Green's a good. He's a good point guard prospect, and he was a good prospect at that level. But there is an undeniable, significant drop off in De'Aaron. Quade, and that's not even taking anything away from Quade because De'Aaron was just freaking awesome from the get-go and always was going to be. So when you combo Quade not being a number one, two type prospect, and then it's a weaker class, and he's surrounded by all this freshman talent, this is what you're going to get. So um, listen, it, it's it's fair to point out that the 2012-13 team was probably headed to the NCAA tournament, and not the NIT. If Nerlens Noel doesn't get hurt, like let's not just skip over that. That that stanchion at, at in Gainesville. But, but, that's the O-Dome. You can't just go into the O-Dome. <laughs> no one just goes into the O-Dome. <laughs> but, um, it, but it's also fair to point out that that team was never going to be a top three team in America, which is where it was ranked in the preseason. So, how about this? In the past ten years, not counting this season right now, the only John Calipari team that, that grossly underachieved relative to preseason expectations is the one team where they didn't have a top three freshman point guard in the country. And right now they do not have a top three freshman point guard in the country. I don't think it's going to be the thing that makes them miss the NCAA tournament or even drop out of the top 25, but could it be the thing that prevents them from being great? Maybe, because when you watch that last night, forget what I'm talking about the rankings. If you want to be dismissive of the rankings, be dismissive of the rankings. When you watch Quadre Green, did he look like De'Aaron Fox? Did he look like John Wall? Did he look like Derrick Rose? He's not the caliber of primary ball handler that John has got used to coaching. Yep. Uh, let's have some fans call us accountable here because we're going to forget about this like two days after we record it. But um, just w- with the context of you having written this column, just for perspective's sake, what is your what is your guess that what Kentucky, if it remains fully healthy, let's just use that caveat there, what, what seed do you think it will get this year on Selection Sunday? Top four seed. Okay. I'll I'm, say a number five. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think they're like I still think they're a top twenty team, um, barring disaster. But like, I do think that not having that guy, I, I think two things really. They're incredibly young. I mean, they like they're starting five freshmen, and none of them are guaranteed top ten picks. That that's a problem. And then you don't have a dynamic, like game changer, a lottery pick at point guard. I mean, Derrick Rose was the number one pick in the draft. Tyreek Evans was, what was he, a top five pick in the draft? John Wall, yeah, John Wall was a number one pick in the NBA draft. Brandon Knight went somewhere. 
you know, uh, it goes somewhere. Yeah, I mean, like what? Well, it's first round for sure. I'm not sure where. That's why. That's why I kept it fake. Uh, Teague was did was Teague a first round pick? I feel yeah. like. He, uh, yeah, I think he was. I think he was. Andrew Harrison, he stinks. I mean, what do you mean? Like he's under contract with the Grizzlies. I see him every night. He's not good. But whatever. He was a number one point guard coming out of high school. Tyler Eulis in the NBA was awesome. He was awesome. I'll go. I will go to my grave saying that if John <laughs> in 2015 would have abandoned that that platoon and just said Tyler Eulis is my point guard, he's going to play 30 minutes a game. They go undefeated and win the national championship. Like, I really do think his decision to split time between Andrew Harrison and Tyler Eulis is the reason he doesn't have a 40-0 national championship. That's a discussion for another day there. I agree with you. Isaiah Briscoe, that's not good. Let's leave him out of this. But De'Aaron Fox, obviously great. Top 10 pick. So, like, John's gotten used to coaching, like, pro, dynamic, awesome point guards. And I don't think he's got one right now. He's got a good like. Listen, I, and it sounds like we're just essing all over Quade Green. It's a top five, no. top five point guard in his high school class, but he's a different level than those other guys. And that that combined with the youth all over the court and the lack of a guaranteed top ten pick, I think it is the type of thing that could keep Kentucky from being a true national title contender. Won't keep Kentucky from being good, but it might keep Kentucky from being a true national championship contender. Let me tell you about SeatGeek, which is. Uh, the smartest and uh, the easiest way uh, to get tickets to, to live events. That's what I've learned over the years, thanks to, to SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience that allows you to buy and sell tickets in just two taps. That's all it takes, uh, two taps. And what it does, SeatGeek, is it helps you find the best seats at the best prices, and it's always fully guaranteed. So it saves you time, it saves you money, and the way that it does that is by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. Like before SeatGeek, I can remember, like I'd go to this place, I'd look, and I'd say, okay, what do they got over here? Then I'd go to this place, and I'd look, and I'd say, okay, what do they got over there? And I'm kind of like I'm looking at four different sites. I'm trying to make sure I'm getting the best deal. Like it takes some real time. I got three jobs and three kids. I don't have that kind of time anymore. No time. And so what I have to do is use SeatGeek because it, uh, it searches multiple ticket sites to compare prices and uh, it finds amazing deals for you, so you know that you're never getting ripped off. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone. You should, too. And the reason is because you never know when you're going to need a ticket for something. Like, you're not always going to be in front of your desktop. So go ahead and download that app and understand that I'm not just a, a, a fan of SeatGeek. I am uh, a customer. I used them recently. I was getting tickets for my wife and I to go see Ryan Adams at the Orpheum in Memphis. Uh, the place that I got them, I got them on SeatGeek. And uh, next time I need tickets, I will do the exact same thing, and you should too. Bottom line, SeatGeek, it's got to be your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports to concerts to comedy and theater. And here's the good news that uh, listeners of this podcast, you're going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase just by using the promo code COLLEGEBB. So download the SeatGeek app and make sure to enter the promo code COLLEGEBB today. That's promo code COLLEGEBB for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase at SeatGeek. Millions of tickets in one place. The UCLA players are back home. Donald Trump brought the UCLA players home. Norlander, in all seriousness, do you give President Trump credit, or has that been overstated? And did you think it was weird that the President of the United States jumped on Twitter Wednesday morning and essentially demanded um, appreciation, a public thank you, from some teenagers? The tweet wasn't shocking in the slightest. Trump obviously has been proven in plenty of instances to be an exaggerator, if not an outright liar on a lot of things. With this, 
I do have a tendency to believe him. I have a story. I have a column up on dot com now, uh, kind of breaking down the the suspensions and my thoughts and all that. But I I link to a story in the New York Times that has some detail about how the State Department and Trump uh, brought this to the attention of the Chinese president. And from there, the timeline does seem to match up that this was an expedited issue um, to be fair, like they could have if Trump had not coincidentally happened to be going on his first ever trip to Asia as the United States president. It, the, the timing of that is is kind of bonkers, GP. The fact that you've got UCLA going on this Pac-12 trip. They happen to have a ball on the roster and LeVar. Like it, the, the fact that all these things smash together still kind of breaks my brain. Um, but it was, it was beneficial. I do truly believe that if, if Trump had not been doing that, um, they still probably could have been headed home relatively soon give credit to rash Markazi, who has been steadfast in re- reporting because uh, he was in china that they were looking at maybe a couple weeks which still is no fun but from what he was told and what he followed with the story this was not going to lead to a situation where they were spending months and years uh behind bars nevertheless uh, you know obviously they were eager to get out there get out of uh asia as just as quickly as possible and get back home to united states soil the trump factor is certainly just it's just added an element to our <laughs> the story. So 2017 GP um, real quick on, on what we saw on Wednesday. Um, well, actually Tuesday night, they, they get back and they land at LAX and predictably just have an amorphous throng of reporters full on Kim Kardashian TMZ style at LAX. Uh, quite a sight to behold. I can't help but wonder what is going on in like Jalen Hill's brain. Like what? <laughs> hell have i done to my life here to go and, in there. and i love the questions like people are screaming things like uh do you think dude. president trump and then somebody's like going do you think michigan state's gonna beat duke dude some of those questions were just the questions were asked because they knew the clip was gonna go viral idiots like what the <laughs> hell idiots um there were a couple of other bad ones in there too uh but then they had the press conference on wednesday all three publicly thanked donald trump as is steve alford all three the statements were tremendous. I don't know if they wrote them themselves or if they had help, uh, but either way, um, even though they were prepared. Hey, they, I know. what They stole them. They stole them. They stole the statements from somebody else. Regardless, uh, they they did come off. Because that's, well, that's what they do. They steal. It came off as well as it, they possibly could have given that, and they didn't take questions. Uh, Alfred announced that they will remain indefinitely suspended. And not just suspended. You're not going to play in games. You're not going to be going on road trips. You're not going to be practicing. When you sit on the bench for UCLA home games, you're not going to be in uniform. That's the right call. I understand that people, dude, my my ads were flooded with references to Krzyzewski's indefinite suspension of grace in that last of one game and all this stuff. I get all that. If you want to have skepticism, because I, as I write in the column, a lot of times an indefinite suspension publicly is a very much definite suspension behind the scenes, and that information just isn't let out. And coaches will often wait to see when public interest and outrage fades before lifting an indefinite suspension and the all clear is sort of given here. That's not the case with these uh, UCLA players. They've, they've brought obviously immense. There are a lot of people that might have some pride in the UCLA athletic program and, and how good it is. Cause, uh, cause honestly, like outside of basketball, UCLA has a claim to being the best athletic department in terms of championships, like anywhere in the country. So there's a lot of pride for the, the student athletes they have there, but there are also people that probably don't give a damn about that who work there, people in power 
who are extremely embarrassed by this and probably wouldn't have any issue if, if all these all three of these players were expelled. Now, they avoided that, which is fortunate for them, but they still got to go in front of the uh, judiciary board at UCLA. So while Alfred is announcing that they are indefinitely suspended, let's keep in mind here that there have been athletes in the past that have gone in front of their own judiciary boards at different schools, and they face season-long suspensions. In some cases, they've actually been expelled from the school. So I don't think that is going to happen but as we sit and wait on this indefinite suspension, if you're banging your hand on the table saying, no, they give them 10 games, tell us a definitive number, give them 15 games, give them the season. Well, first, they got to go through the separate process outside of the athletic department first. Let's get to that, see what the ruling is. Then we'll see what Alfred does from there. And let's keep in mind that although this, these discussions, we probably won't be privy to them uh, publicly, uh, at least in a forthcoming manner. Larry Scott and the Pac-12 will also have say in this if UCLA determines, all right, we're cool with this, you guys are done. Well, there'll be back, you know, backdoor deals that are that are I don't know necessarily negotiated, but if Larry Scott's not happy with this and wants to sit them for the first three Pac-12 games of play if they're off suspension, then he has the authority to do that. So I know we all want to kind of have this wrapped up now because they just got back on soil, but they've barely been there for 24 hours as we are recording this podcast. It's going to take some time, GP. Over to you. Uh, let me ask you a question. Um, do you how much how big of an impact does this have on UCLA season? Like, is this like uh, Leangelo obviously wasn't a real factor, but the other two kids might have been. How good? I mean, I don't think any of them are, are top five. Uh, if we want to talk strictly in terms of between the lines here, I think not having like if you tell me that they're out until January, yeah, I think that has some sort of tangible effect on on their on their depth overall. And listen, Cody Riley's a really really solid player, someone that I think can grow into uh, a very legitimate role player for UCLA this season and could be like probably a top three player on the on the roster next season. Um, but overall, like this isn't affecting UCLA too much. Like if you tell me this roster with them and without them. Two different seasons, two, two different universes, the red universe, the blue universe. If they're all healthy, I don't know. UCLA probably I got is like a five seed. And if, if they're not on the, on the roster, then maybe they're a six or maybe they're a seven. I think that's really the difference we're talking about here. But it is something that should be discussed overall because from where we sit, Parrish, I think it's easier for us often to, to dismiss, uh, dismiss teams' depth because sometimes I think that is uh, very fair. But within the lines on a day-to-day issue, day-to-day issues and with practices and all that, I think coaches and programs can be affected by this. And now, beyond like how deep the team is, like this is the mushroom cloud that lingers over the lingers over the entire season. Like maybe UCLA has this weird streak where they hit like three amazing buzzer beaters in five games, and that becomes like a plot line to their season. Or someone else gets hurt, or they they're even much better than anyone thought. Doesn't matter. Like when they get to the tournament, even if. All three of these players have been playing for two months. These questions are still going to come up. This will be the event that defines UCLA season short of them actually like making the final four. And even then, that will bookend what started the season. Uh, let's wrap up by uh, discussing another development that came down um, just before the Champions Classic was about to, to tip off. I got the text message from uh, a source at NC State that said, hey, it, like, it happened. He, he got cleared. It was Braxton Beverly. I only bring it up because it's something we've talked about on this podcast before. You wrote about it. It kind of got overshadowed because it happened like mm-hmm. right before the Champions Classic was about to tip off. And then once those games started and Bagley's eyes all scratched up and Grayson's going for 37, you know, uh, forget about it. But 
Um, I will give the NCAA credit. Like they, they ultimately got it right. It, it took them too long, and it was a. It, it took them too many PR hits. But um, what's the cliche? All's well that ends well. Um, Braxton Beverly's going to be able to play his freshman season at NC State. Um, you wrote the column about it. You handled the situation yesterday. Um, is it just as simple as they they just said, okay, like this is crazy. Maybe uh, maybe it took Jay Billis. And to a lesser extent, Gary Parrish yelling about how this is crazy, but this is crazy. Let's just do what's right by this kid. Here's my understanding of what's happened here in talking to a few people. Um, litigation and the fact that Beverly was able to, his family was able to hire a lawyer. To, I think that certainly escalated the matter. The continual onslaught of bad public relations, which, to be fair, in the past hasn't stopped the NCAA from keeping firm on bad decisions when it comes to player eligibility. But in this case, uh, from uh, Beverly himself writing a, a pretty you know, convincing and heartfelt uh, first-person account of what he had gone through, and that got shared, and I think it's fair to say that that uh, went viral, at least in college basketball circles, uh, had an impact as well. And from what I'm told, uh, the NCAA was presented with additional information, and then it was proactive uh, in reaching out to Ohio State uh, to retry this case. Now, this was not what the NCAA will not allow itself to do is after an appeal is turned down, it can't be like, yo, our bad. Yo, a meeting, Chili's, 530 happy hour. Let's just talk this over drinks and reverse this decision. Can't happen like that. Since there was a I piece get, of. I would get the chicken crispers at that meeting. <laughs> I love chicken crispers. Do you guy. like them? Like a chain, usually the, the Mott 6 are good. Spinach dip. Spinach artichoke, I love it, but it's so hit or miss. It's like Caesar salad at, at, at restaurants. Unless you know for sure, you just got to dodge it. Because what's worse than like thinking you're going to get a really good Caesar salad and you come out, it's like dry, the croutons aren't good, there's not enough parm. Hate it. Anyway, um, so because they got additional information, they were able to, and I love this because it, it just shows that the NCAA really can do whatever the hell it wants, for good or for bad. It started to retry the case all over again. Right. And after it had... The benefit of hindsight and all of this public backlash that just shone a light on how awful a decision this was, whatever that information was and that has not been revealed yet by NC State or Beverly and who knows what it is, uh, I have been told that it was legitimately something else was added to to context with this case. Um, That was enough for them to say, we're going to make good. But the other point of my part of my column, the point I made near the end was, you can give the NCAA a little bit of credit here, but th- this is just patchwork. The, the job is not done. You wrote about it, GP, a few weeks ago. Kid at Oakland, Jalen Hayes, and the kid at Colorado, Evan Batty, they still haven't had their cases resolved. And just because they might not have lawyers representing them or they didn't get quite as much publicity about it doesn't mean they don't deserve the same kind of outcome that Braxton Beverly has. And ultimately, what this should be leading to is schools handling eligibility. I don't want to just beat a dead horse here on the podcast, but we've talked about this. Not just schools, but if you want to have conferences – be the check and balance there. I think it would be uh, could be done even more swiftly and handled better than the NCAA, which continues just to trip over itself. So great that Beverly's able to play. He was able to play on Tuesday night. Awesome. Uh, but it's still unfortunate you have other players that are still kind of stuck in here and waiting and probably, by the way, aren't going to get the benefit of having more additional information provided for their cases. So they're going to end up winding uh, having to sit out when they shouldn't have to. Best I can tell, the Braxton Beverly situation came down to this. If you give us something new to consider, we can consider it. Find us something new so we can fix this. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that was said in, in those words.
but it looks like the NCAA was like, oh, we got something new. We can reconsider it. Okay, cool. You're cleared to play because this has been a nightmare for us. Because you're right. Whether it was my column or, or, or Jay's tweets or Braxton's first-person account of his situation, um, you couldn't find a person in the country, even a Duke fan, a North Carolina fan, who thought it was reasonable to punish Braxton Beverly given the specifics of his case. And so if the NCAA needed something new to reconsider his situation, um, I'm confident they were anxious to, to look at literally anything new that they could use to justify doing what they ultimately did, which is clearing him to play um, as a freshman. Don't know why it took them so long. Don't, don't know why they couldn't look at the exact same thing you and I and most other people looked at and say this is insane. Put this kid in uniform and let him go. Um, but, um, you know, if they got it done on November 14th, that's better than getting it done on December 14th. It's better than not getting it done at all. And so now Braxton Beverly is a member uh, of the NC State Wolfpack. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, M, F, and Tigo. And remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please go do that. It makes a difference, so we would appreciate it. Rate it favorably. Write nice things. And we will be back a little later on this week for the third podcast of the week. We're doing three every week now, guaranteed. We don't know when they'll be. Could be late on a Wednesday night. Never know, but we'll get to them. Uh, So we'll be back very, very soon. Until then, 